Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again, and I've got Mike Figliolo on the line today. He is a returning author. He We chatted with him, oh, well over a year ago uh, with his original book, One Piece of Paper, which was awesome. Uh, go back into the archives and check it out. It's definitely worth checking. Uh, but today, Mike basically teamed up with Victor, Victor Prince, and uh, they've got this new book out called Lead Inside the Box, How Smart Leaders Guide Their Teams to Exceptional Results. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, everybody says that work outside the box, think outside the box. I love that you're saying, hey, it's about time we got people back in the box. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. And um, I actually hate that phrase, think outside the box, because it doesn't really mean a lot and it's really hard to execute because it's not very tactical and tangible. So we sort of did a little tongue-in-cheek of lead inside the box uh, just because it would turn people's heads and they say, wait, that sounds different and there must be something here. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's one of those words that's been overused over the years and, you know, it's been used for a long time. Uh, another one that's overused is brand. And, you yeah. know, you go into a conversation as soon as somebody says, oh, we want to do something outside the box, big alarm bells go off because it doesn't mean anything anymore. Exactly, exactly. Why did you think it was important for this book to come out or at least the content inside the book to come out right now? So the biggest pressure that I know of in dealing with a lot of executives who I coach as well as their team members and folks we have in the classroom is – the classic do more with less and managers and leaders are increasingly strapped for time. So your choice is either add more time, uh, which is not a sustainable process. And I've learned that through the process of not one, but two heart attacks, which has been kind of awesome. Ouch. Um, yeah, I know. Right. And uh, you think you figure the guy who wrote the book would learn how to do this stuff. But, uh, you know, we we either add hours or we get more efficient and effective with the time and resources and uh, what Victor and I call leadership bandwidth that we do have. So how do you invest that leadership bandwidth, that leadership capital more effectively to get better results out of your team? So that was really the driving force behind the book. And what popped out was the framework for how leaders can think about doing that. Well, you know, you mentioned something there that was pretty pretty interesting that you've had two heart attacks. I don't want to dwell on your health for too long, but I think this is a critical problem that guys have, and my wife reminds me about it all the time. We never admit when we're sick, and by the time we actually say, okay, I'm sick, I better go see the doctor, a lot of times it's too late, and uh, it's all part of this process of like, look, if you're being a leader, part of being a leader is being responsible for your health because if not, then you should be planning for somebody to be taking over your job. Yeah, and it's you know it's even more ironic that uh, in my first book, in one piece of paper, twenty five percent of that book is dedicated toward leading a balanced life. And um, you know, I'll admit the first heart attack was my fault. I wasn't taking very good care of myself from a standpoint of stress and diet and exercise and all that stuff. Uh, this heart attack was not my fault. I don't I don't know what's going on. Hopefully, we'll figure it out in the next few weeks when I see a doc. Um, but my cholesterol is at an all-time low. I'm exercising. I'm dieting. I'm managing stress. 
Uh, so, you know, it's, it's still one of those things, even though I'm reasonably healthy uh, by any standard, it's still something you got to watch out for. Uh, so it's it's become a, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, both literally and figuratively. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it, and, and uh, I promise listeners that we will get off this topic soon, but I think it is important that when you have a, a, a serious sickness, it takes a lot longer to recover um, psychologically, but also physically than you're willing to admit. And uh, for me, I was hiking... Four days ago, and I came off the mountain, and my Achilles tendon was really hurting. So, you know, I did about four hours of research, realizing, wow, I just blew 16, uh, no, 12 weeks of me being able to go hiking because that's how long it's going to take to heal. What I wanted to ask you, as an executive, do you think, uh, or even a, a person that's running their own business, do you think we give ourselves enough time to recover? I don't think we are at all. And I think some of it is the I'm tough, I'm macho, I'm going to get back at my desk kind of dynamic. I think some of it is cultural pressure of um, what are my colleagues going to think or is this going to impact my job? Because in an era of increased unemployment, people do have those concerns. And, you know, I'd, I'd argue it's even harder as an entrepreneur and small business owner, because as a corporate person, at least you've got paid vacation and paid, you know, insurance and paid leave and all that good stuff. As an entrepreneur, you stop selling, you stop eating. And and there's a great deal of pressure to get back out there and drive it. And and it was funny, my doc was saying, well, you got to slow down and stop hitting the road and stop trying to sell so much. And that'll reduce your stress. I said, well, in theory, that's correct. But the other kind of stress that's going to build is when the income stops coming in, and I wonder, where is that money going to come from? That's an entirely different kind of stress. And he said, okay, now I get it, right? So I, I don't think we give ourselves sufficient time to recover. It's something we've definitely got to get better at. Let's talk a little bit about your book. Basically, the premise is that you have to lead uh, not as, oh, I've uh, – this is the way I lead, and I'm always going to lead this way. This is the way I talk to my employees. I'm always going to talk to my employees this way. And in the long run, that's not going to work for you anymore. You've got to have a, a, a much better understanding of, of what you're dealing with. And, and really what you're dealing with is tremendous variety, tremendous topic shifts all the time, and amazing shifts in the actual economy or your particular sector that you're working in. For you, what do you think the most important thing that uh, leaders and executives are missing in their day-to-day -day approach to, uh, to managing? I, I think there's two, if you let me get away with splitting. Um, one is we tend to just look at the employee and say, oh, it's the employee's fault. It's the employee who's broken. And even some of the classic models that are out there, like the good old skill will matrix where we plot people and say, well, you know, Mike is high skill but low will and he's down here and Bob is high skill and high will and he's up here. But that only focuses on the individual employee. And what you're missing in all of that is the actual leader's behavior. And what we've done in this book is said, okay, one axis of the matrix is employee output. But the other thing we need to consider is what's the leader's input, the leadership capital they're investing and how are they investing that time and energy and effort? Because it's those combinations of if I've got an individual on my team who is underperforming 
and I'm not putting in the right type or right amount of effort, well, that's I'm part of the performance problem. And then the second thing that I think a lot of leaders end up missing, and this is more of the, I got too much to do today, I just got to get stuff done, checklist mindset is it's, it's assembly line leadership. And somebody comes in, I diagnose their problem, I solve their problem, I send them on their way. Somebody else comes in, I use the same method to diagnose their problem, fix their problem, and send them on their way. And the, the issue with that is they needed different types of interventions. So we're not taking the time as leaders to pause and look at what's in front of us and deal with it uniquely. So those are two of the issues that Victor and I tried to tease out in this book is saying, let's look at the individual's performance as well as the leadership capital that's being invested. And then let's also look at what are the leadership techniques and approaches you're going to use to change that individual's performance and get out of this assembly line mindset. I think, and we run into this again and again during these interviews, is, yeah, you can have an amazing strategy for an organization, but unless the senior leaders, and I mean as seniors you can get in the organizations, get it and really believe in it, it's not going to be effective in the organization. And that's a classic reflection of what you're talking about in this book is basically, oh, the system's broken or the employees are broken. Here's this new technique. Go fix it but I'm not going to change. Yeah. And that's another one that not just in this book, but in the rest of my practice drives me nuts is we do a lot of training and skill building in the classroom. And so many times I have leaders coming to me and saying, well, my team is broken. So I'm going to send them to your class and you're going to fix them. Right. And I say, well, I'll give them some of the tools that will improve their performance, but you're going to be there. Right. Because you need to learn these skills as well. And you need to be able to coach them and guide them and hold them accountable to using these techniques. So it's the old good for the goose, good for the gander dynamic. And you get these leaders and a little bit of it is hubris and some of it is poor prioritization. And the leaders are saying, well, I'm exempt from having to do those things. It's just my people who need to go execute it. And um, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. I think a lot of that stems from uh, being a leader, especially if it's your company that you've built from ground up. Um, you kind of have this approach that, well, look at I built this company myself. Look at how well we've done. Uh, I know we're struggling right now, but we have done well in the past. Why should I change? I'm the guy that is the boss. I'm the guy that's hiring you. And they've really got this chip on their shoulder that I don't need to change because look at where we are now. Not understanding that having that attitude in the long run is literally going to kill their company. Yeah, and it's it's a balance. And this is a dynamic that I face. And I started my firm, Thought Leaders, and we have a way of doing content, a way of selling, and a way of working with clients and pricing and all that stuff. And you know what? It's been really, really successful. And I'm very happy with it. And as I bring on additional instructors, they bring their perspectives on how we teach or how we sell or how we deliver. Um, and we have arguments about it and, and not, um, you know, argument arguments, but we, we, we debate the points. And I come at these things from a very strong perspective of here's what's worked in the past. But what I try to do is say, help me understand what's different and what the incremental benefit of doing this is. And sometimes they very convincingly demonstrate a case for me and I go, wow, I didn't realize that about the marketplace or that about this particular client or that there was this demand for this type of program. 
And other times they come to me with, well, you know, it's going to improve our scores at the end of class that participants give us. And I say, well, that's great. But going from, you know, a 6.6 out of 7 to a 6.65, is the client going to pay us any more money for that? Well, no. Are they going to buy any more classes? Well, no. Okay, then we're not changing it. You know, change for the sake of change um, doesn't work. So I think it's incumbent on the leader to really understand and hold their teams accountable for the benefits that they're putting forth. And when those benefits are there, look at it objectively as if you're not the owner of the business and be willing to make the change. Yeah, it, you know, you made a very, very salient point there. There's only so much that there's, and it's not like there's X amount of money on the table and you're trying to get as much of that off the table as uh, as you can because at a point it becomes inefficient. It's like, okay, there's $100,000 on the table here. If we can get 80, we should be satisfied with that. To go to 85 or 90 but spend another 50% of your resources and energies to get that point, that's diminishing returns. And I think a lot of people lose perspective uh, when they're t- going against those type of targets. They've got to be a balance of this is what we're going for. If we get that, if we can get a little bit more, that's awesome. But really, that's as good as it gets for, for uh, this particular type of contract. So be satisfied with it and let's move on. Yeah, I think it's the lost art of understanding opportunity cost. And if you don't understand what your time and effort is worth, I don't know how you run an organization. And, you know, I turn down work pretty frequently and it's it's purely on the economics of it. And when somebody comes and says, we're going to pay you X dollars, but we want you to travel across the country and they say, you know, it's X dollars for an hour of keynote. It's like, no, 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 no. That's X dollars for four days of my life because I got to travel. I got to do the contract. I got to deliver the service and I got to do the receivables. There's a lot of time that goes into that. And when you start looking at it that way and breaking it down to an hourly rate or a daily rate and understanding your economics, then you make very different choices, very different choices. You know, in in your book, you talk about uh, time and effort or time versus effort uh, for managers. Can we touch on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, you have so many hours in a day that you can dedicate to the members of your team. And too many times we sit there and say, well, I got to be fair and equitable and give all my people the same attention. And we go with this peanut spreading peanut butter on a sandwich approach where, well, I'm going to give Bob an hour and then I'm going to give Susan an hour and I'm going to give Jim an hour. Well, guess what? Bob needs 10 minutes. And that's all Bob honestly wants because Bob's a high performer and he wants one question answered, and then he should be on his way. And then, you know, Frank needs two hours of my time because, you know what, he's kind of having some problems and he's struggling. So we've got to get better at being deliberate around the way we allocate our time and energy and effort into our people. And and we can't go with this, quote unquote, equitable approach because it doesn't work. Different people need different amounts of leadership capital from you. And that leadership capital being your time and your energy and your attention. Well, you know, and and uh, I'm going to weigh in here a little bit because look at the way the school systems run. And this is what people complain about. It's like, why are uh, the teachers spending so much time with the special needs students? Why is the teacher spending so much time with the mediocre students and not with the top of the top of the line students the the students are doing well they're given the minimal amount of instruction and let off and they still get a's and whatever and this is very reflective of what you're recommending for an organization and yet parents are bitching and complaining saying well i know my kid's an a student but i want her to be an a plus student why 
uh, aren't they getting more attention? Why aren't they getting more time? Yeah, and I think t- I think measuring in terms of time is where it all breaks down. So what we're arguing in the book, and what we would argue, and now I'm going to make some educators' heads explode, is saying, <laughs> well, if you if you got that kid who's getting A's and A pluses, the the real thing the leader should be doing is then challenging them more at the next level. And you know what, you and I both grew up with those kids who skipped a grade, and unfortunately, the educational system is so structured, but um, where, where you can't be skipping people all the time, but there are programs out there where you can send kids to those enrichment courses or those AP or those honors courses. And if you've got a teacher who has a kid in a basic college prep course, and I'm thinking high school here, uh, and they're not, and that kid is getting an A without even blinking an eye. If that teacher isn't challenging that student to say, you should be in the honors class or you should be in the advanced placement class, that's a leadership failure. Or if the parents are holding the kid back and saying, well, we don't want to put you in honors because you may get a B plus there. Well, the parents are messing up, right? So it's, it's really understanding what's the individual capable of and then giving them a challenging enough environment where they can succeed, but there's still going to be challenge along the way. And that's how you differentiate that performance on the upper end um, in terms of getting better results. You know, it's that's so true. Um, one of the things, you know, my, my kids uh, speak fluent Japanese. They read and write it, and and they go to school outside of school to to, you know, have that capability. So now that they're in high school, you can take a language course, and one of the languages is Japanese. So they basically they're they're beyond grade twelve. They're actually university level Japanese. So we went to the school and we said, well look at this is great. We want the our kids to get the credit for this course because they can ace it. And the school said, Great, but she still has to start at beginners, which is ridiculous because then they're learning the ABCs when they're at a very, very high level. So they became bored and disruptive, and then it became a problem. So then we sat down and said, well, listen, why can't they become the teacher's assistant? In fact, they're better at Japanese than the teacher instructing it. So why can't you? And they said, okay, we'll try that. So they still had to do that one academic year uh, to get into the course, and then they got to write the test, and then they aced it and blah, blah, blah. But that's taking a resource, looking at it, instead of it being a problem, looking at, okay, this person has the resource set that they can actually assist me in a higher managerial position because they can do that, which will relieve pressure for me. It will challenge them. It will train them and make them more confident about moving up in the organization. And in the long run, that's what you're supposed to be doing as a manager anyways. And you just described the techniques that we're advocating in the upper right corner of the box, right? (laughs) Which is, yeah, you've got these really talented people. And let's say sometimes you can't promote them. There are no open slots out there. But that doesn't mean that you can't take stuff off your plate and have them do it, have them mentoring their peers, have them taking on special projects. There there are a lot of creative ways. You just got to stop and think about them. And, and the better leaders out there are the ones who are doing that. I run into this a lot where, well, I go into an organization, I'm saying, okay, this is all the things we have to do. And then they'll say, well, we'd love to do all this stuff. We just don't have time. So then what I'll say is, okay, great. Let's not do those things right now. Where do you need to save time? What can we bring to the game so we can take some of your responsibilities off your table We'll manage them. We'll make it happen so you can clear up time so we can actually get to the stuff that's going to help you make some money. 
Yeah, exactly. And and we get the same thing with training, right? Because we get the, oh, I can't take the class. I, I don't have the time or we can't send our people to class. They don't have the time. And uh, or, or you get the counter argument, which is, well, if we train them, you know, they might go to another company. And my response to that is the, okay, well, if you don't train them, they're going to stay here and explain to me how that's a good thing that you want to keep an untrained workforce. And that's when their brain short circuit and they realize the error of their ways. Um, You know, if it's important, you got to carve out the time. Let's talk about the box as a metaphor and uh, how you use it as, as a communication tool. Yeah, so if you look at the axes on it, um, it's it's really a two by two matrix, and along the horizontal axis, which is the um, independent variable, is leadership capital. So how much time, energy, and effort are you investing in somebody? And uh, on the left side of that axis is a lot, because that's a bad thing. Um, you shouldn't be spending too much time on folks. And on the right end of the axis is not a lot. So you've got high performers who don't require a lot of your time, or you got people that you're just not investing in. And then the vertical axis is the results that you're getting from the members of your team from low to high. So when you plot within each of those quadrants, you've got some quadrants where you're investing very little time and you're getting great results, so the upper right corner, and those are your high performers. And then you've got the lower left corner, for example, you've got, you're investing a lot of your time, a lot of your leadership capital, and you're getting very few results so those are the people who are um, square pegs, they're in the wrong role and you got to coach them and mentor them and train them a lot, or they're slackers and they've got the skills, they're just not giving you the results and you're putting in a lot of time trying to move them uh, from where they are and, and they're just resisting. So as you look at the box and understand those different relationship points, what you're putting in, what you're getting out, it's going to lead you to different strategies for the people who are in those boxes. And this isn't about categorizing people and saying, you know, Bob, you're in the upper right box. Well, Bob, you're in the upper right box today, right, based on your current performance and the way I'm interacting with you. But depending on your performance, if it drops, well, you're going to move to a different box. So it's about categorizing performance more than it is categorizing people. Do you think that um, the tracking of performance uh, frustrates people and and they feel that uh, they're wasting their time? I think we're just bad at it, mm-hmm. um, to be honest. It, it's something that gets short shrift. The forms are really cumbersome. They try to measure too many things or they're poorly written and leaders don't put the time into thinking about them and people don't get held accountable to using them. Um, I've seen performance management processes that are wonderful because they're ongoing conversations and those documents are nothing more than something to record how we've done and to spur a conversation. And when it's looked at that way, I think the performance review process and management process can get very robust. Um, It's just a question of how are you using the tool? Well, there you go. It's how you're using the tool. Let's talk a little bit about how how to utilize this book. Should, uh, can somebody just go in and and, and just jump to one section that they're really interested in? Um, Or should they kind of read the beginning and then then they can jump around? Or is it more of a book that takes you from, you know, point A and all the way to point Z? So I would say read the beginning first, because you got to understand the framework and the tool and the way to use it. 
Uh, there's also an assessment in there, and it's something like 17 questions total that you can answer about your individual team members and the way you're interacting with them. And once you've answered those questions, you can then plot that person's performance on the matrix, and then you can jump around, right? So if I've plotted, I, I've done the assessment, I find out Bob is in the upper right corner and he's a high performer, how do I interact with him? Well, I should jump to section four because that's where I talk about the high performers. So I encourage folks to know the entire book, um, but once you've identified somebody in the way they perform, you can move to that section to learn the leadership strategies, but you should also understand the rest of the strategies therein. And then the last third of the book is, once you understand the entire method at, at a basic level, it can be used, the tool can be used in a variety of situations like a reorganization or you take over a new team or you have a massive layoff uh, or you have a crisis at work and how can you use the leadership matrix to very quickly get an assessment of your talent portfolio and then understand, okay, I just took over a new team. Here's where I'm going to allocate my time and energy at the beginning because here are the performance issues that I want to work on and fix. So reading the book, read the first section, get into the assessment, and then if you want to start jumping around to some of those sections for the different performance categorizations, that's totally appropriate. And then the last section should be read as a whole to understand different scenarios you might find yourself in and how to use the matrix to help you in those situations. Let's talk a little bit about how to get started with this. Um, it's not a management style. I guess you could call it a management style, but basically strategy. How do you get started? Because, you know, you talked about a lot of things that just now, and one of them was like reorganizing or taking over an existing team and figuring out where everybody is in the matrix and, and all that type of stuff. Do you think the matrix is the first thing you do when you're introduced to your new team, or is it more of a, a sit-down interview that type of approach and then the matrix comes into play maybe a couple of weeks later. What do you think? So I, I think you got to look at it as a living document in terms of the results that come out of the leadership matrix. Um, if you're talking to that new leader as you're transitioning, maybe you talk to them about their people and you take your first cut at where their performance might end up on the leadership matrix. Then you do some of your initial interviews for the first few weeks with people and you refine that look on where people are. And then you watch their performance for the first couple months and you refine that look further. So it, it's something that should be a living document and you should be tracking people's progress as they move through the matrix, as their performance changes, or as you change the way you're allocating your leadership capital, they're going to shift on that matrix. So I think you can use it at different stages, just understand how accurate the answer will be. Um, obviously, just walking in the door is not going to be as accurate after you've run the team for about a year, right? So you're actively using this technique and, and you've introduced it to lots of organizations. Where do people stumble the most or, or have that where they don't quite get it and then you kind of have to revisit a little bit and there's guidance? I, I think... We're challenged delivering bad news and having difficult conversations is difficult. That's why they're called difficult conversations. So where we fall down is I've got somebody who is a slacker is the behavior type that we talk about where they've got the talent, but I'm not getting the results and I'm spending a ton of time on them. But it's really hard to go tell this individual, hey, I'm not seeing the results out of you. So it's much easier to just 
inflate their grade a little bit and hope that they figure it out on their own and that their performance changes, which by the way, it rarely does. So that's where we're falling down as leaders is not having that courage to deliver difficult messages, but then help people change their performance. The other side of it is where we fall down is we're not willing to invest the time to think creatively about how do we challenge those high performers? We just sit there and say, well, they're high performers, they're challenged, they're happy, they're getting top bonuses. Meanwhile, they're sitting at their desk going, I am so bored, this is boring, I wanna go somewhere else. And then they quit and we try and figure out what happened. Well, what happened was you didn't invest your precious time thinking about how are you gonna challenge and retain this person. So it really boils down to the leader understanding that individual situation and then putting in place techniques and approaches and challenges that are going to be appropriate for that individual. That's where we fall down. Why do we keep slackers around then? You know, I I think we keep them around because one, there's a halo effect. So this person looks great on paper. They interviewed really well. They may have been in the organization for a while and delivered awesome results. And there's this effect of, well, they were, you know, a distinctive performer in the past. How can you think about firing them? It's like, well, they were distinctive two years ago. And let me tell you what they've done this year. So, you know, it's it, they're carrying that halo effect. So we keep them around for that. We keep them around because we don't want to have the difficult conversation and tell them they're not performing well. We keep them around because we may not be effective in having that difficult conversation with them. Um, I don't know if you've been in the situation where you've taken over a team and you have a high performer who is or formerly high performer who's now a bit of a slacker and you're the new boss. Well, you have no political capital to come in there and this person is going to push back on you and it's difficult to get them to move and change their performance. So I think they stick around. Honestly, I think slackers stick around because it's difficult to overcome that inertia that they've got of having been a solid performer. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like a, a new book, How to Deal with Slackers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wrote the blog post about it based on, as an excerpt from uh, from this book, and it was really well received. And it, it's, a, it's a pretty widespread problem, unfortunately. And, and fessing up, I've been a slacker, right? I think we all have. We've hit that role where we say, I'm not challenged, I'm frustrated, I'm bored, I don't like my boss, so you know what? I'm just going to mail it in, and I'm going to ride the wave of my prior performance, And, um, you know, sometimes I got away with a little bit and other times I got called on the carpet. Uh, So that's the difference between a leader who doesn't have the spine and a leader who does is whether they call you out on it and make you change your performance. I, you know, and it's interesting because you you mentioned earlier about, you know, high performers leaving an organization because they're bored and they haven't been challenged or they don't think they have any meaning in their life or whatever the mechanism, the thing that's triggering them to to be disgruntled or whatever. I think a lot of uh, the problem with slackers isn't it that they're slackers, it's just that they're either disillusioned with their position in the organization, they're frustrated with something in the organization, they don't feel challenged, they don't have any meaning in their life. And that isn't any of their problem. It's bad management at that point. If management has to, number one, read more books. If they can't, if you can't motivate a slacker, read a book and it'll teach you how to motivate yourself to get excited about having excited people. Yeah. And, and that's why when we look at the, the matrix, we're saying, sure, one axis is the results of the individual, but the other axis is how are you putting your leadership capital to work? And if you're not spending that time and saying, wow, 
you know, Bob used to be a high performer and now I'm not getting the results from him and he's a slacker and, you know, I'm just going to keep kicking at him and, and tell him you got to shape up, Bob. Well, that's not going to work. I've got to sit down and I need to invest a lot of leadership capital thinking about, Bob, why are you unsatisfied? What do I got to change on the team or about your job or your role and, and the work that we've got you doing to get you back to that high level of performance? And, you know, I, I may have to do as a leader, I may have to do a lot of work to make those things happen. But if this person has been a high performer in the past, Victor and I are arguing that that's a very worthwhile investment to make. What about young staff? Because, you know, they're coming out of the university or, or college or whatever, and you've hired them, you brought them on, on board, and you brought them on board because they fit a specific set of skill sets. But do you feel that when you bring in a younger person, you don't really look at them the same way as somebody that's more senior in the sense that, well, they do this and we're just, we'll eventually get around to training them instead of looking at them and saying, okay, this guy has this particular personality. They have these skill sets. We can see where there's going to, you know, after doing a matrix with them, we can see that we might have a problem in the future here. Let's find that person a mentor so that they can be basically educating themselves and, and have a place and a person they can go to and chat and say, look, I'm getting frustrated. I don't want to go to my boss. What can I do? Do you think that's a good strategy or should it really be that your boss is your mentor? I, I think a lot of folks can benefit from mentoring relationships outside of their direct chain of command. So I've always encouraged people to find those mentors and for entrepreneurs and small business owners who say, well, I'm it, I'm the chief. Well, guess what? There are a lot of mentors out there. You can create your own personal board of directors, of advisors and past bosses and family friends even. Um, so I, I, always, I always encourage people to find mentors. I think it's tough for that manager, for that direct line leader to be that mentor just because the mentor is going to be able to talk to the person about issues that relate to the boss. Um, I, I think some of what happens is we're just so consumed with the day-to-day -day that as long as Susan is doing fine and she's my undergrad that I just hired and there's no issue, I'm not going to pay it any mind until Susan's going to HR and saying, hey, I'm really not satisfied with my role. What else do you have? And then we deal with the problem. So we're very good at crisis management and Victor and I are arguing for you can get a lot more um, proactive and do more preventative maintenance for your folks than when the wheels fall off the bus. So for you, what was your aha moment? Something that crystallized and you, re you realized that, wow, this is a core truth. So I do some executive coaching as part of my practice. And obviously I've led teams large and small and I tend to look for themes of conversations that I'm having. And I just had a discussion this morning with somebody I'm coaching and I drew this framework and I said, okay, after the 10th time that I draw a framework on the whiteboard, I probably need to document it and there's a learning there. So a lot of the conversations that I've had with leaders over the years have been exactly the ones that Victor and I are talking about in the book. And it was that time to put structure around this and for a lot of seasoned leaders who may read this, they'll say, yeah, I kind of knew that or I'm, I'm already doing it, but now I've got a language to do it or a structure to do it. For more junior leaders, these are issues that they haven't thought about this way before. So by documenting it and making it something that is pretty practical and applicable, 
we we felt that needed to be done to kickstart some of those more junior leaders' careers or help those more senior leaders who are struggling with a very diverse talent portfolio that isn't performing at the level that they want. What should leaders do? When, you know, they've got the book, they've read the book. What's the first thing they should do? Should they share the book with other people or should they kind of make their own little strategy? I mean, what's the best approach to, uh, like, if you're not the owner of the company, or hey, let's say even if you are the owner of the company, how do you introduce this new philosophy to the workplace? Do you uh, decide on, okay, this manager, he's, he's uh, into learning new stuff, so I'm going to turn him on to this and then we'll, we'll evolve this? Or do you just go to the whole organization and say, okay, we're going to try and evolve in this direction. Let's everybody get excited about it. I, I'd encourage the leaders themselves to go through the book, read it, apply it to the members of their team, try out some of the techniques that we're recommending in terms of improving people's performance, improving your own performance as a leader and how you allocate your leadership capital. And then once you're comfortable with the method and really understand the way it works as well as what its limitations are, then I think you start spreading it to other members of your team and helping them understand how they can apply it uh, to the teams below them. I, I think just going wholesale and saying, as much as Victor and I would love it because it would sell a lot of books, um, I, I really wouldn't advocate for just, hey, I read it and I just finished and now let's make everybody do this. I, I don't encourage that with any sort of learning strategy, this book or anything else that we do. It's it's learn it, get comfortable with it, understand its place and then start rolling it out more broadly because then you're going to be able to put some color commentary around it and give people perspective on here's how it fits. Here's how I want you to apply it in this organization. And here's how I expect behaviors to change. Because if you can make the linkage from the book to their personal context, they being the members of your team, when you can link their context to the content of the book, then it's much more effective. I wanted to ask you, you're working with Victor, the two of you decide, okay, let's put this book together. How is creating a book with two authors different than doing it by yourself? Yeah, so you, you go in and say, oh, it's going to be 50% of the work, right? Because <laughs> I only got to write half of this thing. And, and that's sort of the, you know, the initial, that's a really good idea in theory, um, the, the way we wrote it was Victor had the original idea, uh, and that's why we've listed him first as, as the author. Um, that's always one of the choices you got to make, but this was absolutely a 50, 50 partnership. And we, I, I'm a big fan of nail the framework first. And we spent a lot of time really thinking through what is leadership capital? How do you assess for it? What is team member performance? And then how do we make this something that's going to be generalizable to different industries, different functions, different levels? And once we had that core framework down, the rest of the structure of the book emerged very naturally. So you've got four quadrants. And within each quadrant, we've got two behavioral types that we look at. So you got eight behavioral types. Um, so then you had a whole series of chapters that sort of popped out, right? You got one to describe each of the quadrants, and then you've got two for each of the behavioral types. Um, and then you have the last section, which is about how do you apply the matrix, the leadership matrix in various team situations. And once we had that chapter outline, then it was like, okay, Victor, you write these chapters, I'll write those chapters. And then we'll swap manuscripts and we'll edit each other's work and we'll look for consistency. We'll look for um, language. We'll look for just the overarching structure and how we're tying things together. 
And we just went back and forth editing work. Um, we use we use Dropbox as a tool to handle the manuscript, and we would check a section of the document out and work on it and check it back into Dropbox when we were done and uh, just use track changes along the way. And by the way, Victor lives in Washington, D.C., and I live in Columbus, Ohio. So we were doing it all remotely uh, with some phone conversations along the way. When you went to editorial phase where you actually had the editor look at it, uh, do you feel that there was less editing involved because you kind of done the back and forth or was it basically the same amount of, okay, now that we're finished the book, now we got to restart it again? So we were in my first book in one piece of paper when I got the manuscript back, um, I, I had written it all by myself and I got it back from the developmental editor with about 288 pages of red ink. And I was like, wow, that kind of hurts. <laughs> um, and then I sent it back for, you know, the line edit and I got back, you know, uh, less red ink, but a lot of red ink. Um, and then it went for the final print edit, the proof edit. And that was kind of fine. This time around, I uh, this was Victor's first book. This is my second time around. And when we went to the point of starting to edit, I pulled out and created a list of, okay, here are all the things we got to fix, like eliminate the words just, so, very, and really, and fix your adverbs and fix this. And I knew what all the edits were going to be from the editors. Um, and we worked off of that list. So when we turned it in, um, I, I think we had a very well-structured manuscript and the developmental editor wrote us back and said, okay, so I'm good with this and now it's going to line edit. And we're like, wait, what? You don't have 288 pages of red ink? And she said, no, it's like really well-structured and really clear and the stories are great. And um, you guys have turned in a, a wonderful manuscript. And then when we went to the line edit, um, she came back and said, yeah, so I had a few like tiny grammar things, but there weren't that many. And I'd say it was a pleasure working with you, but I don't feel like I did any work. So we, you know, that time that he and I spent editing and just thrashing this manuscript really did pay off on the back end in terms of um, that that document going through very quickly. Well, you know, it, it goes to show that by understanding what you're responsible for, and especially if you've got the uh, luxury of hindsight because you've done it before, and say, okay, well, we're going to face this problem, so let's just try and fix it now. And then when we get to the point where we're handing it in or we have to get it approved, it's going to be a lot smoother process. Yeah, we'll put the energy and time up front, but in the long run, we'll be able to actually get the thing moving and get it approved and get some momentum in the organization. So I think that's a very good way of approaching your basically workday strategy. Yeah. And this is the pay me now, pay me later approach, right? We knew there was going to be a lot of editing, so we could either let them edit it. And and now you could argue that Victor and Mike didn't use their time wisely, right? So there's, there's a flip side here. Victor and I spent a lot of time editing it and really cleaning it up. However, we had a publisher who has that capability too. And would we have been better suited to say, that's eh, good enough, throw it over the transom and let them spend a bunch of time marking it up and then we can just accept their edits. So, you know, there is that approach. But I also look at this as sort of a, a pride of authorship, a pride of craftsmanship sort of issue as well. And I have a hard time with a document that means this much, right? If it was just a, a memo, okay, whatever. When it's, when it's a book that's going to have your name on it and be out in the market, um, for, for both of us, there's a real pride of authorship in that. So uh, that's why we made the extra investment. 
Uh, for people who want to know more, where should they go? It's very simple. They should go to leadinsidethebox.com. And it has the book information there. It describes all the different behavioral archetypes. We got some video on there explaining the method and how to use it. And we've got a really cool little assessment on there. So if people want to assess the members of their team, they can go through and answer the questions and then even document some things about the individual's performance as to why they're rating them a certain way. And what they get on the back end is a nice little email summarizing those results and saying, well, Bob is an exemplar because here's how you rated him and here's your little verbatim comments that you left about his performance. So you can actually use our website as some of the performance management tracking uh, and assessment up front. And, and the assessment's really easy to take and we love putting that documentation in the leader's hands to make it a little bit simpler for them to implement the method. I would think also that uh, when you get something like that back, it'll really, it opens your eyes to how you perceive your staff as well. It's like, wow, I, I never thought of them that way. But now that it's being mentioned to me, yeah, that's totally how uh, I perceive this person. So I'm going to communicate to him differently now. Yeah. And, and it gets to that inertia effect that we talked about that with that slacker who used to be a high performer. And when you go through and actually assess them and you answer these questions objectively, and you get told, yeah, they're not really a high performer. They're actually a slacker. You start having your eyes open to a different perspective. And if we can do that and get leaders to look at their people a little bit more objectively and then deal with the performance challenges they've got, we feel pretty good about that. That's why we wrote it. For our listening audience, what's one thing that they can do today to start their way on an inside-the-box type of management style? I, I think outside of you know, get the book and, and learn the method. I think it's just really getting better at understanding where you personally as a leader are investing your leadership capital. Again, that leadership capital being your time and your energy and your effort. And start understanding who are the people who are the drains on your time? Where are the places that you're spending time and energy that you don't need to and, and you're just micromanaging and get out of their hair? It, there's a lot of self-awareness that has to occur to get better at this. And that's a core part of the, the method itself is really doing that assessment of how you're behaving and how it's impacting your team's performance. We've been talking with Mike, but Victor should be first because he was, uh, he was the guy that was the <laughs> front of the team. So it'd be nice we've been talking with Mike. And uh, the book called Lead Inside the Box, How Smart Leaders Guide Their Teams to Exceptional Results. An awesome book and a very uh, smooth read. I would highly recommend you check it out. Thanks for coming on the show again, Mike. It's been my pleasure and I appreciate the invitation. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.